Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another one of our weekly podcasts. My name is Richard. On behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Due to minor technical difficulties in this week's episode, we're going to have some audio fluctuations at the beginning of the episode. Pastor Brian is going to continue our study through the book of Proverbs as we continue to ponder the Proverbs in this week's episode. And with all that said and done, let's go ahead and dive into this week's message with Pastor Brian. So again, we are going to be continuing through the book of Proverbs. Uh, we are looking at thinking like a Christian today. And like I said, as we've been going through the Proverbs, we've been looking at many different ways we can act. And we looked a little bit about thinking. We looked that wisdom begins the fear of the Lord. And so there are, there are ways we have somewhat addressed thinking like a Christian. Uh, but what often happens as Christians is we will think like a Christian in some areas, and in other areas we won't. And so what we need to do as Christians is to make sure that all of our thoughts are taken captive towards Christ, not just some of them. Christ is not just Lord over some areas of our life. He is Lord over all areas of our life. And so what we need to do as Christians is we need to sanctify Christ as Lord of all of it, our actions and our thoughts, because our actions are going to proceed from our thoughts. And so if we are not thinking like a Christian in every thought, then what's going to happen is we're going to be acting not like Christians. And so we need to take every thought captive and we need to think the way the Bible tells us to think um, in, a, in accordance to Christ. And so what we're going to do is we're going to have Christ be the authority of all of our thinking. There is no higher authority in life. There is Christ is above all, and so the authority of our thought itself is going to be Christ. And so we're going to take Christ as the authority, and what we're going to do is we're going to lift up biblical thinking, and we're going to destroy the lofty opinions of the world that come against Christ. And as we do this, we're going to be able to take this thinking and we're going to apply it to each and every area of our life. There is no area of our life that is left out of Christian thinking. Each and everything we do is going to be for the glory of God. And each and everything we do is going to require us to think from a biblical perspective. And so today we're going to look at thinking like a Christian. How do you and I think like a Christian? And it's going to start with God's authority. Uh, Today we're going to be jumping out of Proverbs chapter 26. Uh, verse 4 through 5. So if you guys could turn with me there, Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4 through 5. In Proverbs 26, it says this, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he may not be wise in his own eyes. Now to understand what this is saying, we have to look at what the folly of the fool is. What does it actually mean for the fool to be in folly? And so for that, we're going to kind of jump out and we're going to look at God's authority and man's thinking in relation to one another. And so the folly of the fool is their worldview. And if you haven't heard that term before, what a worldview is, it's, it's a way that you think about life. So everything that you perceive in, in this world, you think of it through a worldview. And so oftentimes there are many different philosophies of life that kind of come into our minds that kind of guide how we think about things around us. And so even when you don't realize it, you actually have adopted philosophies most of the time what is from the culture. And so the culture has their mainline philosophies. And if you've been with us for a while, you've heard us talk about existentialism. And so that is the predominant philosophy of the day. But you don't have to be an expert on existentialism to think like an existentialist. And that's true of the other philosophies, because there's not just one philosophy, but there are many different philosophies that come into the world that uh, that men have thought up and that we just adopt 
in our thinking. And this comes across in our Proverbs. Now, for the Christian, we have the Proverbs that we have in Scripture, but even in the world, we have Proverbs. We have sayings and stuff that we kind of live by. Um, you know, you'll hear people say, live and let live. There's a, there's a deeper meaning to those words than just the simple words themselves, and that is a modern proverb. And so what we do is we've kind of adopted these ways of thinking like the world, and that's what a worldview is. It's just a way to think about life. How do I deal with situations? And so you'll have sayings and things to, to prompt your thoughts on these things. So everyone has a worldview. It is unavoidable. And oftentimes the mainstream worldviews are not Christian worldviews, but many Christians can be pulled into these non-Christian thinkings. And so for you and I as Christians, we want to uphold not a worldly worldview, but we want to uphold a Christian worldview. And so we have to make the distinction, what is Christian about a worldview and what is not Christian about a worldview? So for you and I, if we want to uphold a Christian worldview, it has to be centered in Christ. That is what makes a Christian worldview a Christian worldview, is that it is centered in Christ. And here we can even make a distinction between a Christian worldview and a theistic worldview. Uh, because the Jews will have a lot of similar moralities and a lot of similar thoughts as us, but they don't hold the Christian worldview because they don't acknowledge Christ. So we can agree on a lot of points there, but they have a theistic worldview, not a Christian worldview. They believe God exists, but they don't believe Christ is God. And so the Christian worldview is not just in its moral standings, but is in the acknowledgement of Christ as Lord. So for the Christian, we acknowledge that Christ is Lord, and we have a presupposition that God exists. And so in the book of Romans, it tells us this, that everyone knows that God exists. The only reason they deny him is because they're suppressing that truth and unrighteousness. And so oftentimes, you know, non-believers will tell us, well, prove to me God exists. And oftentimes Christians will kind of get hung up on that. And the problem is we don't actually have to prove God exists. They know God exists. The fact that we are here proves God exists. The fact of creation proves God exists. And what they're doing is they have that knowledge, but they have suppressed it in unrighteousness and no longer acknowledge what is plain in front of them. And so the Christian understands that God is the creator of all things and that he has spoken to us. You see, natural revelation is enough to know, let us know that God exists, but we need special revelation to know who that God is and what he has done for us. And so we have the scriptures where God has spoken. The Bible tells us that um, no, none of the prophets wrote anything down by their own will that it was the prompting of the Holy Spirit that caused them to write down the scriptures. And that is because we need something from God to know who God is. We cannot know God without God revealing himself to us. And so in the Christian worldview, we recognize that God has spoken and that his spoken word was written in the scriptures so that we can know who God is, we can know our own depravity and that we are in need of Christ. And we can know that God is the one who brings to us salvation. And so this is the root of the Christian worldview and who Christ is, what he has done for us, and who we are in relation to him. And this is why in Proverbs 9, verse 10, it says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. This is the root of the Christian worldview. It starts with God. We don't have to reason to God, we reason from God. And so the Christian worldview cannot be ashamed of saying, because God has said and we're going to get into some more examples of why this is true, but we cannot be ashamed of saying something is true because God has said it. Now, the, the world is going to mock us for saying this. They're going to say we're foolish, but that's okay. The, the, the people in Christ's day mocked Christ. They belittled him, and the Bible tells us that they will mock us because they mocked him. So we cannot be ashamed of the message of the gospel because that is the root of the Christian worldview. Christ is king, Christ is Lord, and he is the authority of all. 
And so we need to think in this manner. And so we have the Christian worldview, and then every other worldview is a non-Christian worldview or a non-believing worldview. And so these worldviews can be more organized or they can be more disorganized. The more organized ones are usually religious, so we have things like Mormonism, Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, and so on. These are more organized worldviews. Um, and then we have disorganized worldviews, such as agnosticism, atheism, spiritualism. These aren't, don't necessarily have specific tenets that people try to follow. It just kind of builds your own lifestyle type uh, teachings. And so these worldviews come and they all compete, com compete with one another, including competing with the Christian worldview. But all those worldviews have two things in common. One is that they all reject the biblical Christ. Even the ones that acknowledge that Christ was a good teacher or a good prophet or something like that, they reject his deity and they reject that he can bring to us salvation through his work. And so ultimately they are not Christian worldview and so they reject the biblical Christ. The other thing that's common amongst all the other worldviews is that they are inconsistent with reality. The only one consistent worldview is the Christian worldview, and that is because God is the creator of all things. And when he tells us something is true, we can know it is true because he is truthful. So when we reason as Christians, we uphold the Christian worldview, and we have a more consistent understanding of reality because God is the one who creates all of reality. And all the other worldviews, as they attempt to build up a worldview without God, are going to always fall into inconsistency. They're always going to not be able to fully explain everything. Only the Christian worldview can do that. But this doesn't mean as Christians that we are immune from being inconsistent. Oftentimes we can come to faith, we can believe in God, and uh, we will still have kind of our mind in Christ and a mind in the world. And we have a split brain, we have a duality in our thinking. And so what uh, this is often referred to as is the sacred-secular divide. And so what this means is that there are areas of my life that are sacred and they're for God, and there are other areas of my life that are kind of neutral or, you know, that it doesn't really matter about my Christian thinking here. And so, you know, Christians will have Sunday morning is sacred. I, I honor God on Sunday morning. I honor God in my prayers. I honor God when I read the Bible. I honor God in my family. But in the public realm, well, I can't bring my Christian thinking there because there's other people there that don't believe in Christ. And so we leave our Christianity at the door and we go out into the world and we act like the secular world. And this doesn't mean that we're necessarily, you know, out partying and doing all the licentiousness of the world. We'll be personally pious, but then our thinking isn't pious with us. So we go to education, we go to politics, we go to all these spheres, and we say, well, my Christian understanding needs to stay at the door because there's other people involved in this area, and I can't tell them, you know, I can't bring them to my Christian thinking because they don't believe God exists. So we kind of start bringing morality without God, and that is a secular way of thinking. The authority for all of us Christians is going to be God. So even when we address politics, when we address any topics, it has to have God involved. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says this, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, really, I want you guys to dwell on this for a little bit. Think about this, really. This means that you as a Christian can eat food in a way that does not glorify God. This is something you do every day. Most people do it three times a day, unless you're dieting maybe two times a day. But people do this constantly every day. You're eating and drinking. And you can do this in a way that does not glorify God. And it's a simple task. It's a common task, right? Everyone does it. Everyone eats. But the Christian eats and drinks to the glory of God. And so if you're a Christian and you're not eating and drinking to the glory of God, you're not doing all things to the glory of God. 
And he continues here to say, to do all things to the glory of God, not just your eating and your drinking. Everything you do is meant to glorify God. So how can we say there are areas of my life where I can leave my Christian thinking at the door? This is an argument in politics, right? Well, you can't bring your Christian thinking to politics because there's people that aren't Christian there. So you have to kind of leave it as a neutral ground where we don't bring in religions. Well, if you do that as a Christian, what you're doing is you're saying, I don't need to honor or glorify God in this area. I can leave my Christian thoughts behind and reason like the world reasons. What you're doing here is you're assuming neutrality. You're assuming that there is a place in our life that is secular when there isn't. All of your life is meant to glorify God. All of your life is meant to be devoted to him, not just some of it. And so we have to recognize that there is no neutral position. Christ has told us, you're either for me or you're against me. There is no neutrality in this world. We're either going to be glorifying God in the things we do and the things we think, or we're not going to be glorifying God in the things we do and the things we think. And so, again, we can't have this split brain. We can't think, I'm going to glorify God over here, but these areas, those are fine to kind of leave to my own devices. It simply isn't true. Again, Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. Jesus says, he who is with me, he who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. And that's what we're doing. We can be Christians, we can think like Christians in some areas, but when we leave our Christianity at the door and we go out into the world and we start reasoning like the unbeliever, what we're doing is we're leaving our Christianity at the door and we're not with Christ in that. And so we've become double-minded. We're serving two masters. And we cannot do this as Christians. We must uphold the Christian worldview. And so again, people will sometimes point crossovers in thinking. So they'll, they'll talk about, you know, we can go back to the example of eating. Well, everyone eats, that's neutral, right? Everyone has to go to do politics, that's a neutral ground, right? But we saw from the example of eating that even that is not neutral. We need to eat to the glory of God. So there might be crossovers in worldviews where we can agree with other people, but that does not mean we come to the conclusions for the same reason. So for example, we can take murder. We as Christians know murder is wrong. And what's funny is if you ask an atheist, they'll tell you as well, yeah, murder is wrong. No one should be murdering. And then you say, well, I believe murder is wrong because God says it's wrong, and they'll mock you. I don't need God to tell me murder is wrong. I just know it's wrong. And so they'll mock your Christianity because your reason for knowing murder is wrong is because God has said. Well, what's funny is that in the book of Romans, it tells us that God gives to us our conscience. So that way we can know God's law. And the problem with that is we also suppress our conscience itself. So even our conscience of knowing what is right and wrong comes from God. So the atheist knows murder is wrong because God told them it's wrong in their conscience, but they don't recognize God. So the problem is that they don't see the truth behind what they're claiming. And what we can do is we can actually push them and prove to them that they don't uphold that. Because if the atheist will oftentimes appeal to evolution. And if you push them to the roots of their worldview, they'll ultimately have to say, well, murder's not wrong. There's nothing really wrong with murder. I just don't like it. And so you kind of destroy their worldview. And so for the Christian, we need to recognize that crossovers in our understanding, crossovers in our morality, does not mean that is a neutral place. Just because we all have to be involved in politics, just because we all have to be involved in schooling, just because we all have to be involved in these public areas of life, does not mean it's a neutral place where we don't bring our Christian worldview. It has to come with us wherever we go because Christ is Lord of all. And so we're told to do everything to the glory of God. We can take a look at Israel and see what happens when we don't do this. Because Israel was religious. They upheld the, the, the sacrifices, the feasts, the festivals, the gatherings. They did all those things. 
And so you could say Israel was religious. They were doing all the right things here. But God hated what they were doing because they did not bring their religion into all of their life. And so we see in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11 through 14, he says, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Now we need to remind ourselves that God commanded them to do all these things. But why did God hate that they were doing them? Because they did these things and they did not do it to honor God. But then they even went further and they did not honor God in the rest of their lives either. And so there was tons of lawlessness, tons of horrible things going on in Israel. But Israel was saying, but God, we're, we're still worshiping you over here, just, just not over here. And so they had a, a split way of thinking about God. We cannot do that because the same thing is going to happen to us. God destroyed Israel and he will destroy us. He will break us down because we are not honoring him the way we should be. So we need to make sure that God, that we are attempting to glorify God with all of our lives. And that starts with making God the authority of our thought. God has all authority in this world. And the truth is that we cannot be saved and not have our life dedicated to Christ. They, they're one in the same thing. When we are saved, when Christ becomes Lord over us, he is our final authority. And there is nothing above him. We see this in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. It says, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And we need to stop here for just a moment and recognize what the saying. All authority, not some, not most. All authority has been given to me. And it's not just in heaven, it's also on earth. You see, Christ is Lord over everyone, not just believers. The difference between the believer and the non-believer is we acknowledge the authority of Christ. So even for the non-believer, Christ has all authority over them on this earth. They cannot escape it. They simply suppress the truth of this in unrighteousness. And he says, because all authority has been given to him on heaven and on earth, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so because Christ has all authority, we're going to go and baptize all the nations. We're bringing people into the obedience of Christ, training them in the obedience of Christ. And this is going to be in all things. Again, if all authority says, why would we only put some of our thinking towards Christ and others elsewhere? It should not be so because Christ is our final authority. And so we can even look to the greatest commandment, which again, we see from Jesus in Matthew. Matthew 22, verse 36 through 40. It says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So it's easy for us to do this with our heart and soul. Those are feelings based. I love God, you know? And we can feel it in our soul, just a longing for God. But what about our minds? We cannot leave that part out. We have to love God with all of our mind, all of our thinking, every thought bent towards him. Being made to be obedient 
to him. So we have to set Christ as the authority of our thinking. This means our reasoning starts with God. Everything that we know to be true has to start with God. And when we attempt to go around this, what we're going to do is we're going to make something else an authority in our life except for God. So for example, um, we have Eve in the Garden of Eden. Now Eve went into the garden and she was deceived by the serpent and she ate of the fruit and she sinned against God. But let's think of another scenario where Eve is in the garden and she's there with the serpent and the serpent tells her the lie. And Eve says, well, no, I, I can't eat the fruit because I'm full. I already ate. Now, did she eat the fruit which God told her not to do? No, she didn't. But did she honor God in her thinking? No. Because her reason wasn't because God has said. Her reason was because I'm too full. So maybe in another scenario, but by her own reasoning, she could have eaten it. So for her to have honored God in her thinking, she has to, it's not a, a robotic thing. It's not just simply God has said, but she's reasoning from God. So she can tell the serpent, no, God has told me this is wrong. Why are you trying to pit me against God? I am not going to take your word above God's because God has spoken and I want to follow after him. So that's her making Christ the authority of her thinking. Why am I going to go with what the world says? Why am I going to go with what Satan says when God has said something different? I don't get to choose on my own what is right and wrong. God chooses that. And so in that way of thinking, you're making Christ Lord. And we do the same thing in our thoughts. Why do we take the positions we take? Why do we have the morality we have? It's not because of statistics. We don't look at what the best outcomes are. What we do is we look to what Christ has said. And it turns out that when we do what Christ has said, those better outcomes end up coming about because God knows best. But we're not doing it because of our own reasoning of the numbers. We're doing it because we know God is truthful and God is going to lead us in the right direction. So we're doing things because God has said it is so. And so we're making Christ the authority of all of our thinking. So we want to abandon that duality of thinking of the sacred and secular. We want to toss that aside because what that is doing is bringing us into the folly of the world. And so what we want to do is we want to make Christ the pinnacle of our knowledge. Psalm 111 verse 10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. So we have to start with God. He is the one that guides our thinking. He's the one that guides our actions. And when we follow after him in this way, with all of our thoughts, we're going to better be able to, um, to follow after the rest of the Proverbs that we've gone through so far. And so I want to go back to Proverbs 26, verse 4 through 5, which says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you'll be also be like him. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he may he, he not be wise in his own, his own eyes. So when we look at this verse, again, I wanted to go through that first part to show you what the folly of the world is. That's the folly we don't want to fall into. We don't want to think like the world and reject God, even in some of our thoughts. We want to honor God in all of our thoughts. And so what does it mean here by not answering the fool according to his folly? Well, what that means is what we're doing in this is we're setting aside our biblical thinking and we're thinking like a fool. So oftentimes, you know, atheists will come up and they'll mock Christians for starting with God. And so the Christian will say, okay, I'll, I'll set aside God. You don't believe he exists, so I'll set that aside. And I'll set aside scripture because you don't believe that's authoritative. So now let's reason over here on the side. And so what are you doing? You're no longer holding a Christian worldview. You're holding the atheist's worldview. So how are you going to argue from atheism to Christianity? It doesn't happen. You're adopting their thinking. 
And so their thinking is centered around God not existing. How are you going to go from God not existing as a presupposition to God existing? It just doesn't happen. And so we need to recognize that we cannot answer the fool according to his folly. We cannot enter into his worldview and try to prove Christ from his worldview because his worldview is foolish. That's what the Bible tells us. Their worldview is foolish. It is folly. Why are we going to go into it to try to give them answers? And what happens is we can sometimes get them to reason morally like a Christian. So we can take a topic, um, let's say abortion, and we can convince an atheist that abortion is murder. But if we do that without Christ, if we don't hold Christ as the authority of why abortion is murder, then the atheist is going to come by that reasoning on his own terms. He's not going to think like a Christian. He's going to think like himself. He's going to reason to himself and come to what he finds to be a better conclusion. And so what you're going to do is you're going to reinforce his thinking. You're going to puff him up in his own understanding. So we don't want to reason like people because when we do get them to agree with us on moral positions or political positions without Christ, what we're doing is we're creating Pharisees. We're creating people that outwardly appear righteous, but inwardly are dead men. In Matthew 23, verse 25 through 28, Christ addresses the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. When we attempt to jump into the, the non-believing worldview and reason with them there, that's what we're doing. We're creating Pharisees. We can bring them to the right moral positions, but their morality is not based in Christ. And so they are self-righteous. Look, I can reason. That's, that's why they say, I, I don't need God to tell me murder's wrong. They think they're righteous because they know murder's wrong. So when you jump into their worldview and you're reasoning with them in their worldview, all you're doing is building up their own self-righteousness. You're not leading them to Christ. The Bible did not say, bring people into agreement with biblical morality and then convert them. It says, reveal to them the truth of their sinful nature and the salvation that's in Christ. So we don't want to simply win moral battles. We don't simply want to win political arguments. We want to bring people into Christ that way. Their reasoning is through Christ. So when we go and answer the fool according to his folly, we become like the fool. We're now reasoning like a foolish person, and we're no longer reasoning like a Christian. So do not answer the fool according to his folly, or you will be like him. But then verse 5 gives us the other side of it. Answer the fool as he deserves. The, the ESV and the KGB reads it as answer the fool according to his folly. So this seems like a contradiction. How can I both answer the fool according to his folly and not answer the fool according to his folly? Well, on the first side, we already addressed that. We're not jumping into their worldview and reasoning from it. In the second one, what we're doing is we don't want the fool to become wise in his own eyes. So what we're doing is we're temporarily jumping into their worldview to prove the foolishness of their worldview. We want to show them the inconsistency of their worldview. And so we're not abandoning Christian thinking. We're presenting the ideas from the Christian perspective. But then we also want to jump into their worldview and show them that their reasoning is not good reasoning that ultimately they cannot come to a logical conclusion from their worldview. And so I've seen this, I think I've told the story before, but there was a, a Christian talking to an atheist, and the topic of cannibalism came up. 
And so the Christian said, well, I know cannibalism's wrong because God has said it. And the atheist kind of scoffs like, well, I just know cannibalism's wrong. We shouldn't be eating other people. Why would I eat someone that's horrible? And so the, the Christian said, well, how, how, do you, how do you know it's wrong? He's like, I just, I just know it. He's like, well, there's people on the other side of the world that are cannibals. They eat people all the time. And there's no one in that society that thinks there's anything wrong with it. And he goes, well, I mean, you know, it's right for them, but it's not right for me. Why? Because he has a subjective view on morality. And so the Christian pushed him further. He's like, well, if you went and lived with them for a year, would you be willing to become a cannibal then? Because that whole society tells you that it's okay to be a cannibal. So if you lived with them, would you be a cannibal with them? And so the guy said, well, I mean, I might try it. So did he actually believe that cannibalism was wrong? No, it was subjective. He, had, he, he knew originally, he knew that it was wrong. But his worldview was subjective, and so he could not present why it was wrong. And so it crumbled before any questioning. He had to hold to a subjective worldview or, become, or contradict it, and so he decided to uphold the subjective part of his worldview and show the foolishness of agreeing with cannibalism when pushed. And so that's what we're doing when we're answering the fool according to his folly. We're pushing them in their worldview to show that it does not uphold to reality, that you cannot prove morality from another worldview. It has to come from God. And so we want to answer the fool according to his folly to prove that it is false, to prove that it is folly. That is not the way to come about to Christ. You are not self-righteous. And that's what we do when we enter the worldview of the fool, to prove it foolish. Paul does this when he goes to uh, Athens and he talks to the Athenians about their gods. What he does is he doesn't say, hey, I have another god that you can choose from. He goes to them and say, hey, I have the one true god you can worship. And they chased him out. Why? Because he told them the truth. He didn't try to reason within their their, uh, multi-deistic worldview. He didn't try to just present another of many gods but he confronted their, their gods and said, those are all false gods. There's one true God. And so like Paul, we can't just go into a worldview and try to present the gospel from a, an atheistic or an agnostic perspective. We have to present it from a Christian perspective because we know Christ is the authority. And so what we're doing this is we're lifting up the authority of Christ in the worldview and we're destroying all the other worldviews and showing them to be foolish. Another way we can do this is with taking thoughts captive. The Bible has two also seemingly contradictory passages about taking thoughts captive. One saying, don't take your thoughts captive, and the other one saying to take them captive. And so we see this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, which says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And then in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5 through 6, which says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. And so in the first one, we don't want to take our thoughts captive, but we have to recognize the direction of the captivity here. We don't want to take our thoughts captive to the philosophies and empty deceits of the world. So every philosophy is an empty deceit. Every philosophy that man has come up with is a way to try to describe the world without God. And so what we do is we hear these philosophies and we kind of like them within ourselves. And so we adopt worldly ways of thinking and they are empty deceits. They're according to human traditions. They are not of God. And so we don't want to be taken captive by those things. We don't want to fall into these false ways of believing. What we want to do instead is we want to take every thought captive 
to the obedience of Christ. We need to make sure that our thinking is Christian. We need to make sure that our very thoughts are obedient. A lot of times we think of obedience in our actions, but even your thoughts are meant to be obedient to Christ. And he says here that we're, even when we are in our obedience and completeness, we are still doing this. We're still looking at our thoughts. We're still thinking about our thoughts to make sure they are obedient to Christ. And so what we need to do is we need to think about thinking. It kind of goes even deeper than just regular thought. We think about why we think. We think about how we think. Why do I think the way I do? Why do I take the positions I take? Why do I have the morality I have? Why do I reason the way I do? We actually have to think about these things because if we're coming at these things from a non-Christian perspective, we're dishonoring God in this. We're not glorifying God in it. We have to make sure that each and every thought is obedient to Christ. And so we're taking, are we taking positions because of a tradition? Well, I just kind of grew up this way, so it's what I've known. Are we taking positions because they sound nice to us? I like the way it sounds. I like the way it makes me feel. Is that our reasoning for why we think certain ways? Or is our reasoning because God said? Because God said. This is how we need to think. That's how we take our thoughts captive. Why do I take the positions I take? Because God said and he is the authority of my thinking. Now again, this doesn't mean that we don't have reason. We aren't robots, we still think, but our thinking starts from God. And so we can know God has said something is good and then we can prove it's good in the world as well, but our reason for following it is because God has said. And so we need to start that way with all of our thinking. And so we want to abandon the, um, the bad way of thinking in two ways. We want to abandon the sacred secular divide and we want to uphold the good way of thinking twice, which is upholding the authority of God and suppressing the worldly way of thinking. We want to uphold the Christian worldview and show the folly of the other worldviews. And so in all of our thinking, we're going to think like a Christian. And we can do this in all of our life. Again, we already talked a bit about applying it even in the, our eating, but really all of our life is meant to be thought up like a Christian. There should be no thoughts we have that are not obedient to Christ. And so we can do this when we are defending our faith. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says this, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Notice in the opening of this verse it says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That is what makes us always ready to give a defense of our faith when Christ is sanctified as Lord in our hearts. If you're simply giving logical arguments for your faith, then what's Lord of your heart is logic. Now, it doesn't mean we abandon logic. We still use logic in defending the gospel, but it starts with Christ. Our reasoning starts with God. Our hope starts with God. So we're not telling people, well, you know, I just reasoned this was probably the most likely scenario, so I decided to follow Christ. That's not what we're saying to people. We're saying Christ is Lord. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the authority of this world. And so I have submitted to his authority. Because the Bible tells me that every day, or one day every tongue will confess and every knee will bow and say that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so I'm doing that now rather than waiting because he already is Lord. That is the defense of our faith. That is what we are defending, that we know the truth of the gospel. 
And so defending our faith, we're not going to just use reasoning and logic and try to get people to get um, what people call the smallest gap. They say, I'm going to convince them that this is the most likely scenario, that it's most likely that Christ died. It's most likely that God exists. It's most likely that the Bible is true. And so that way it's a tiny little gap for them to then logically jump over. But that's not thinking like a Christian. That's using logic as your authority and not using Christ as your authority. And the thing is that if we do that, we can just as easily jump into and over that. If there's a small gap that you're leaving in logic, then why do I need to make that jump? Because you haven't proven anything. And that's what happens when you don't reason, when you don't defend your faith like a Christian. You need to know that God is the authority of defending the faith. And so we need to start with him in defending our faith. We need to show people that Christ is Lord because he is. We can do this even in evangelism. Oftentimes there are uh, larger churches that will do evangelism in very strange ways. They'll invite people to try God for a while. Just give it a try. You might like it. Come to church. It's a nice environment. You'll love it. What are you inviting them to? Are you inviting them to have Christ as Lord? Or are you inviting them to an experience? Are you inviting them to a place where they can feel fulfilled on their own? You see, in evangelism, we're not just inviting people to try something. We're not inviting people to one religion out of many. We're declaring to them, Christ is Lord. And if you don't acknowledge it now, you will acknowledge it one day, but in a place you don't want to be. When Jesus came in Matthew 4.17, he says this. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He told people, turn to me. My kingdom is here. So why are we not saying the same thing? Evangelism is telling the truth to people, not getting them to come to an experience, not getting them to agree with us philosophically. We're telling them the truth of who God is and calling them to repentance and faith into him. Because that faith in Christ, that, is, that saves them. Not coming to church, not reading the Bible, not having discussions. It is their faith that brings them to that. And so we want to present to them the truth of the gospel. And again, people might reject us because of this. They might mock us for having Christ as the authority. They might mock us for following after Christ, but that's okay because they mocked and hated him, and so they will hate us as well. We cannot be ashamed of it. We can have Christian thinking in politics. I'm not going to go super in-depth on this, but this will be one of our topics on the Wednesday nights. So if you want to hear more about it, come to the Wednesday nights. little plug for you guys to encourage you to come. But even in politics, we are to honor God as Lord. And what's amazing about the American system is that what many people don't realize is that a lot of the uh, laws in the United States, at least in the original founding, were based off biblical principles. So for example, we have innocence until proven guilty, which is a biblical concept. We get this out of Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, which is on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. And so we get this and many other concepts within our law from scriptures. And this is because the founding fathers, even though many of them weren't Christian, they all upheld a Christian worldview, at least in the ethic of it. And so they knew that the government they were putting together um, required a Christian ethic. It required a Christian worldview, and many of the laws were built on that. And what's amazing is that many of the states at the founding of the nation had their own state churches. They just didn't want the federal government to come and say, no, this is the federal church. So the separation of church and state was meant to be at the federal level, not even the state level. 
And so many of the founding fathers, they actually had prayer meetings in the House of Cong Congress. They based law, the first um, Supreme Court justice, um, I forget his name now, but anyways, he, he recited biblical law as the precedent for his rulings on, on American law. So they recognize that the Christian worldview is central to the United States. And so as, as people in America, we have an even more reason to rely on our Christian thinking when it comes to politics. But what about the Christian that's not in the United States? What about the Christians in China? What about the Christians in all these other places that do not honor God in their law? Well, even they are to honor God in their politics. The Bible tells us that um, the government is a deacon of Christ, which means that they are a servant of Christ. And so once again, if Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth, even the governments are meant to be subject to Christ. And so in Romans 13, it tells us that um, the government is meant to uphold and, uh, up and punish the evildoer. That's the role of government, is to punish the evildoer. And so what happens when they are not doing that correctly? Well, we have examples all throughout the New Testament of, of the apostles defying the government. I mean, Peter and Paul both broke out of prison. I'm pretty sure that goes against the law. Peter and Paul, um, uh, Paul oftentimes challenged the leaders of the day. They, they went to, when they were still in Israel, um, Peter and the other apostles, they challenged the religious leaders. They told them, don't go preach. And they said, we're going to preach because we're going to follow Christ. And so, yes, we do need to honor our government, but that does not mean that the government is king. Christ is king over the government. That's why it says he's king of kings and lord of lords. There's an authority above them that the government has to go towards. And so the role of the Christian is to appeal to the government to be obedient to Christ. That is what Paul wanted to do. Paul wanted to go to Rome to preach to Caesar. He wanted to bring Caesar to the obedience of Christ. And even within Caesar's house, there are many people that were converted and were doing this as well, trying to bring Rome to the obedience of Christ. And so every nation that has a Christian in it, the Christians are meant to not only bring the individuals, but they're meant to bring the entire nation to Christ. So that way all the people are actually honoring God. The nation of Hawaii, before it was incorporated into the United States, had written a constitution that said, no law of the Hawaiian government shall go against the law of God. So that way their whole government was God-honoring. And that is what we should desire as Christians in politics. We want all of our lives to be honoring to God. There should not be an area where we say, well, this is not God's. All of it belongs to God, every bit of it. And so in politics, the way we vote, who we vote for, the way we think about policies, all of it should be centered in the Christian worldview. What has God said about this? How can I weigh the scripture into my thinking here? And then in everyday life, I think this is the one that is most commonly overlooked is everyday life. Because it tends to be that we go through kind of these rituals or habits. You know, we wake up, we go to work, go to sleep, and it just kind of becomes habitual. And we're not really thinking about honoring God in our day-to-day life. Again, we kind of think that it's, everyone just kind of does this, and there's no real way to honor God. But the truth is that even in the mundane activities, even when we're cleaning our house, we can honor God in it. Even when we're going to work, we can honor God in it. When we're raising our children, we can honor God in it. And everything that you can do, you can honor God. We see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 through 18, it says this, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Rejoice always. Christians should be the most rejoiceful people. 
And this doesn't mean that we can't mourn. You know, we, we lose loved ones that we go through hard times there. We can't have, it's not saying don't have any emotions, but even in those hard times, we can rejoice. Why? Because we know what Christ has done. We know of his promises and we can them. So we can rejoice always, even in the sad times. It's, it's a bit of a paradox, but a Christian can be mourning and rejoiceful at the same exact time. Why? Because we have Christ. So when you're going to work, rejoice. When you're cleaning your house, rejoice. When you're going to bed, rejoice. When you wake up, rejoice. In all of your life, always be rejoicing in Christ. Pray without ceasing. We need to be constantly in prayer all the time. And what we're doing in our prayers is we're reminding ourselves of the goodness of God. Again, if we have God as the authority of our lives, what's a, what better way to remind us of God constantly than praying constantly? Now, this doesn't mean that we have one continuous prayer throughout every day until we go to bed, but we're constantly raising up prayers. We're constantly thinking about God. We're constantly talking to him. And we can still have our set-aside time of longer prayer time, more focused prayer time, but our thoughts should always be towards God. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. Christians, again, should be the most joyful and thankful people of all. Because, again, we know the promises of God. And so what we're doing is, even in those tasks, even in the daily tasks and the daily grinds and the things that we just have to do, what can happen is we are rejoiceful and thankful to God in those things, and they no longer become monotonous. They no longer become just things we have to get done. Because we're honoring God in them, we're glorifying God in them, because we're giving thanks to him in all that we do. And so in this way of thinking, we can glorify God, glorify God in all that we do in everyday life. And the truth is, when you think like this, you won't even be able to plant a tree in the same way. You're not just planting a tree for shade, but you're thinking, I am doing something similar to what God has done. God is the creator of all things, and I am planting the seed, and because of God, it will grow into a tree, and it's going to shade my children. So you can't even plant a tree in the same way, thinking this way. It affects your whole life. And when you start thinking this way, when you start rejoicing and praying and thanking God, it's amazing how much it changes your life. When you have your focus on God, it's amazing how much your thinking changes, how much your attitude changes, and how no matter what happens in your life, you can still be joyful. And this is what the Bible talks about when there's a peace that passes all understanding. The world's going to look at you and say, why are you so happy? Why are you so rejoiceful? Aren't things hard for you? Aren't you sick? Aren't you going through troubled times? How are you rejoicing? And you can say, because of God. Because I know my Savior. And I rejoice in him always. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, I pray that as we go through our lives, that we do this constantly. That we make you the authority, not just sometimes, but always, God. You are the authority of our lives. You are the authority of our actions. You are the authority of our thoughts. And God, we want to honor you. We want to be obedient to you. And that starts with our thinking. When Jesus was on the earth, he, he warned us about our thinking. He warned us that even if we hate someone in our minds, that we've already committed murder in our minds and that we are guilty of it. Our thinking is important, God, because out of our thoughts come our actions. And we don't want to be like the Pharisees, God. We don't want to be outwardly righteous, but inwardly dead. God, we want to glorify you with all of our lives, 
with our thoughts and actions. And so I pray, God, that you would give us the strength that you would remind us constantly to rejoice, to pray, and to thank you continually. Because, God, the gift that you have given us is greater than any other thing we could ever receive. And so I pray that through our lives we can rejoice you to you in that. Even in the hard times, even in the losing of loved ones, even in our own sickness, even in our own downfall, God, that we can turn to you and know that we can be thankful that you are our God. We praise your holy name. Amen. And that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.